0: Yeah, I do. I enjoy conversations about beer, and that's just one great big long conversation for
1: two, three or four days straight. <laughs> it's even longer than an episode of Brews Years Week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to Brews News Week, recorded 28 July 2022. I'm Matt Kirkegaard, founder and editor of Brews News, and I'm joined again by my good friend, Brendan Varus, former founder of, well, still founder of Feral, I'd imagine. Brendan, is that still how you regard yourself? Oh, I think founder is something that uh, you don't get to take away. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, But we're not joined by industry consultant Sabrina Kunz, who is down with the and. Uh, as, as a lot of people are so uh, it it's going to be crusty white men radio this week and no doubt we're going to have some feedback from uh, the editorial team uh, afterwards Brendan yeah um,
0: everything old is new
1: again <laughs> but mate, it was great to have you and I've had I've certainly had some great feedback uh, you know a lot of people liked hearing your voice again it must be nice to know that you, you've been missed from the industry
0: well, look, I, look, I did get I did get contacted by a few people. To be honest, I don't know that they necessarily said um, hearing my voice was what they wanted, but <laughs> certainly, certainly, you know, um, there are people listening. And, and hello to all those people that reached out and said um, that they had listened and, and enjoyed the episode. You know, they, these days, um, I'm, I'm not a social media type person, so to, to get a text message um, or a message of any sort is um, almost like a written letter for me.
1: <laughs> Say hello to all you people. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like a postcard or something. So it's uh, it, 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 it's nice. But yeah, no, the, I, one of the things that we, um, we we never say that we've got the biggest audience because we want to speak to the right people. And I think the news that we cover for the industry probably isn't appealing to to the average beer drinker. But we try and skew it towards the um, you know the the, the the thinking industry audience, which is uh, nice to hear that they're the people that reached out. Yeah, um, I do know a couple of people that think yes. <laughs> So, uh, mate, let's crack on with the news, and no doubt we'll um, we'll get some more of your uh, insight, insights into it. <laughs> a rather relevant headline for us to start, given who the uh, podcast panel is this week. Um, diversity milestone for the Sydney Royal judging panel. The Royal Agricultural Society of New South Wales is celebrating a milestone for its Sydney Royal Beer and Cider Awards judging panel, which featured an industry-leading 50-50 male-to-female split for the first time. This was achieved with help from the Pathway to Judging Program at Women's Organisation Pink Boots Society Australia, which nominated two judges, MC Jarrett, brewer at Two Birds Brewing. Although I think she's just joined, just uh, news this week is that she joined uh, Brick Lane. And also Namesia, I'm pronouncing that properly, Namesia Dale Cully, cellar door manager at Wildflower Brewing and Blending. Judging for the Sydney Royal Awards took place last Tuesday, the nineteenth of July, and Chief Judge Ian Kingham selected the panel of judges, which included not only an equal gender split but a diverse array of judges from large and small breweries and different career backgrounds. So, Brennan, that would have been a huge change from your early days of judging.
0: Yeah, certainly the well, in Australia at least, um, it was the early days of judging here was very much. Um, Really old crusty guys just at the beginning. Um, remembering back to the early days of AIBA, there was you know maybe three or four craft brewers and 30 guys from the two big houses that had to be equally split 15 15 almost. <laughs> um, and, and, and it would have been if it wasn't 100% male guys in either technical roles or brewing roles, it was 99%. So, yep, that's a big step. Uh, over. In the US, at, at competitions like the World Beer Cup, they've had a pretty diverse range of people—not just in terms of gender, but where they work, come from in beer. Um, for a long time, I think two thousand six, two thousand eight was the first time I went up there, and even then, there was as much more diverse than what we looked at here. But great to see Sydney's
1: seems to have that well covered now. But as a judge, you know one of the things that my team and i'm very mindful that it's just two blokes talking about this on on, on this podcast but we no doubt Ooh. we'll have uh, uh sabrina and claire weighing in um next week but one of the things that sabrina and claire have said on the podcast is that it's not diversity for the diversity sake it's not just making up numbers but it's the the value that different points of view and different experiences bring to you know, anything. So, to, to my business, um, having a, 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 an increasingly diverse team, you know, it, it points out a whole lot of issues that, you know, when it was just Pete and I, we were probably a little bit blind to. Um, do you think ha- having a diverse panel enhances the judging experience? Because I, I, you know, I, I know that one of the things that we hear in the industry is that women sometimes have better palates for a variety of reasons than men. Will that change the judging, do you think? Really, it
0: should be somewhat technical process. I.e., there's words on a page, and you're technical. You've got technical mm. training and sensory training, and so you sniff, smell, taste, um, and line up what you what you've seen with the words on the page, and and you get a result. Now, there's it's also conversational amongst the table. So the mix of people at the at the table, I think, leads to better conversations. Some people might in 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 certain with a certain group speak one way they may not with you know with whether it be females or whether it be an older person or younger people um the the age and gender and background in terms of language even can sometimes be a barrier but also sometimes helpful um if you've got international judges for example the way that it makes conversations have to be more considered and more um not polite but when they are polite but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but but yeah certainly more considerate I think having a diverse group makes people be more more considered and um, thoughtful about who they're speaking with and to but
1: one of the things that fascinates me uh, about the science of taste or the you know the, the, the forensics of taste is you know our, our taste buds are our proximate Taste sense, you know, it's it, it's the mm. chemicals in something that we actually taste, having a reaction to the senses on our tongue, and then you've got smell, which is you know taste at a distance, you know, almost because you, it it it's, it's the volatiles that you pick up um, through your sense of smell. But you know, we all have a different experience of any beer that we drink, and we can change, you know, we, we can train our palates to identify the the various um, elements of a beer. But do you think that a variety of experiences and a variety of personalities and a variety of histories and, you know, as you said, judges from around the world, that, that we taste things the same or that is there a, um, a diversity of, of, of experiences with the same beer even around the judging table?
0: Both, I think. Certainly, different people have strong and weak points in their sensory profile, um, so Disotyl sulfur oxidation. Some people are su- super sensitive to one or one or all of those. And some people can be hundred percent blind to one and see everything else just straight at a at an ordinary level. And some some trained to be more sensitive. So that's the difference that you need from having a panel of people rather than an individual. Um and then there is experiential, um a specialist in sour beer who only ever makes sour beer. Is going to have expertise around that specific range and type of beers that someone who only ever makes lager beer isn't going to have. Um, and equally, you don't want the sour beer guy sitting there doling out all the scores all by himself for champion lager. So, um, back, background and then you know the individual, genetically, what someone um, has got dropped with both both of them are, are relevant.
1: Mm. Okay. And just to completely uh, disappear down a different rabbit hole, but one of the things that raised a few eyebrows at the AIBAs this year was, I think last year, the champion Pilsner was the Rattenhund that was a uh, barrel-aged, sorry, it was an aged Pilsner, you know, beautiful beer. This year, Peroni, um, (laughs) which a lot of people probably wouldn't put in, you know, they'd put in that modern lager category or that contemporary lager category more Mm. so than the Pilsner. It won the trophy. And, you know, for a lot of people who don't know the judging process, um, would be a little bit surprised that those two beers could win the same trophy years, a, a, a year apart. Um, how does that work? So
0: within style guidelines, I think there's the explanatory part about it, which, you know, can be, you know, low to medium low or in terms of bitterness or whatever it may be. So mm. there's a range of everything. And there's also a range in the technical part in terms of alcohol, colour, bitterness, um starting and finishing gravities those type things so so that's within a range now i think it'd be reasonable that in an example like that one more would be at an extreme end of of one of those ranges so maybe only just just might have ticked all the boxes just um at perhaps a high end um and another perhaps at a low end they still fit within that what is considered that style and you go and look through, yeah, it is. It's colour's right. Oh, your carbonation? Yeah, no, it's right. It's bitterness. It's right. And then you look at it as a beer. Is it all that up? Yes. You, you reread the guideline. Oh, it's it balances? Is it so Yeah, it is. So it gets scored accordingly. Um, so I, I can – it's somewhat confusing and it's, I can see it being somewhat problematic to consumers who just don't think about these things a lot and they've got two very different beers that – might have a gold medal or a trophy for best pills now. But I can understand with how guidelines are written and presented and how they need to be considered, how those two could, if they both presented perfectly on their day, do very, very well in the same style.
1: Mm. You know, we, we've seen a number of awards um, creep in to the industry where it's, you know, a, a non. technical panel you know looking at it from you know freestyling or from the consumer's point of view and is this a good beer is this not a good beer do you think they have value or do you, you know do different judging processes you know provide different value or you know do you think the consumer you know just a good pilsner style or a good pale ale style winning a gold medal should be enough
0: I guess it depends how the awards are trying to market themselves. Yep. Are these people totally unaware of what's good and bad? Probably not. I don't know the details. Um, are they technically tasting to get into the nitty-gritty of what the best example of a particular style is? No, but I don't know that that's necessarily what they're they're purporting themselves to be. Um, and if they're just giving opinions as a group of people and, and consumers are able to understand where it's come from, then okay. Um, I guess when you put trophies and medals on things, sometimes people might have a different understanding of what that means mm. potentially confusing
1: um,
0: <laughs> yeah Pete Layla for example who doesn't write beer anymore still does his top 10 or 100 at Christmas time for the Australian just because there's no one else doing, doing it, it yeah
1: and and he loves it by the way
0: <laughs> and and he does love it and and he doesn't for a moment think that he's picking the 10 best beers he's picking a a range of beers that have been put in front of him at some time over the year that he's somewhat enjoyed, and said, "Here's my 10. Yep. You're not saying he's an
1: expert. He's not saying these are the ten best, but here's my ten. But he's hugely influential. Everyone loves to be mentioned on in, in the Australian in the Peter Lala list. Uh, they do.
0: <laughs> they they do. But I don't know where does he say these are the ten best beers, or these are the ten you have to have at Christmas. These are ten Pete's pick. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think is a reasonable way to to do it if you're not not for a moment. Pete's not for a moment thinking that he's encyclopedic in terms of what the options were. Um, It's just 10 that have appealed to him over the
1: year. <laughs> uh, moving on in the news, Bath Haas report positive despite global risks. The 2021-2022 growing year has seen another worldwide increase in hop cultivation, production and alpha production. However, COVID-19 still present risks for the industry that are exacerbated by the conflict in the Ukraine according to Bath Haas's latest report. Now, this is a really interesting report that comes out each year from, you know, Global Hop Grower Bath Haas mm. looking at the whole brewing industry and, you know, through the prism of hops and some of the stats are world hop acreage rose in 2021 by 0.8% to 62,886 hectares. Harvest yield surpassed 2022's result by 7%. Uh, to 130,800 metric tons and alpha production volume increased to 14,173 metric tons recording a record high of 10.8 percent in average alpha acid content for all varieties harvested. Um, If you want to see the report there's a link in the show notes. Uh, Anything out of that that tickles your interest uh, BV? Not so much that I guess I've got a
0: curiosity around, and it looks like having had a a record year last year it won't matter but Curious around what the heat will do to Europe's harvest this year um, as it gets towards the end of growing season. Those hops should be, you know, reaching the top of the poles just about now um, or be there even. Um, I'm curious with what this weather may have done to that. I, you know, It seems like if you've had a record year with beer not being at a, a peak, you know, not as much as it was, say, so back in 19, there'll be some carryover supply from last year available if this harvest is down, but that heat, I don't know that um, without the irrigation that I know a lot of those, those farms in Europe would like to have, um, that heat may, may, may see a, a lesser harvest this year.
1: Yeah, well, I, I can partially um, answer that because we also published um, Stan Hieronymus's, uh He does a monthly hop queries and he looked at the weather um, and I'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, he poses the question, how will record heat in England and on parts of the European continent affect the 2022 hop crop? It was not a death sentence, but there were concerns even before the hottest weather arrived. In uh, Czech, growth and development of hops was very good until 19th of June. When unusually hot weather settled on some hop gardens, the stretching growth completely stopped. Um, For this reason, part of the hops will not reach the height of the trellis, according to Bohemia Hops' monthly report. In the Halital region, farmer Florian Seitz, who sells much of his hop to American craft brewers, reports hops are not looking good. Two major hailstorms hammered parts of the Halital, one of them destroying about 500 hectares, um, and recent rain has cooled the region. Um, so, yeah, so it certainly looks like there's going to be a impact, um, let, let's say, and we'll we'll, we'll we'll see what comes. Yeah, and they, these things are not – unless it's really chronic
0: in a year, it doesn't sound like it's chronic. It's not going to be a great harvest but not a failure. Um, on the back of 2021, which seems to have been a record-type year, it doesn't seem like there's cause for panic or any great um, – shortage coming up but you know repeat it next year and the year after and we'll you know the conversation will be a little bit different what's your
1: advice to brook is i remember brendan it would have been the late 2000s Um, so about 15 16 years ago there was a fire in a warehouse there'd been some storms and there was a suddenly a a shortage and that was at the stage that a lot of craft brewers were fairly small and you know probably hadn't even looked at things like contracting and those sorts of things how as a brewer do you you know hedge yourself against contracting too much but then also uh, you know guaranteeing your supply for your your, your critical hops yeah and my advice
0: would be Potentially different to how I
1: how I did it. <laughs> okay, w- it, it, explain why you, your your advice would be different now or to, to how you did it, and then give us the advice. Yeah. So when we started out, there was two hop suppliers,
0: and I was um, very very loyal to one of those from day one, and they were just starting their supply of hops into Australia at the time. So as a foundation. As a, as, a, as a starting business that we were and they are a starting business as well. We were like a foundation customer. We had a very good relationship and we were very, very open about um, our needs and they were open about their supply situation um, and there weren't lots of customers in the beginning. We managed to maintain a relationship on that basis almost until the very end of my time at Ferrell, and. I think that's because we kind of grew together, would help each other out. We'd understand that we always did what was in everyone's best interest and we communicated really, really well because we explained each other's circumstance. Now with so many more um, accounts to manage, I don't think they would, they could run an account our size that way and I don't think I'd want to run my account with a supplier that way either. So it's more a unique timing thing that allowed us to do it that way. Um, I would absolutely contract... 60% of you need at least. And if you've got a particular – and this is just for very small brewers, um, bigger brewers more, um, but even startups, even if it's only a five-kilo box, contract it for the year. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, I, I would. Um, and if you've got a particular hop that, that that you need in your beer and it's crucial and that beer is going great guns and you're going to put a bit, put a bit of effort behind it and it's important to the success of your overall brewery, that hop in that particular beer, then you should be – contracting heavily on that and
1: maybe even going over it's one of the things that i think non-brewers don't think too much about you know we have a lot of discussions about you know beer is the new wine or but they're they're fundamentally different products aren't they because beer is recipe based you're not mm. guiding the ingredients to be the best expressions of themselves as directly as you are in wine but you create an end outcome for your vision, for what, what your product to be in, in, in beer. Is that a fair – Very much so. So the, the,
0: I think – and I don't know if we might touch on this. I see saw another thing that you popped up this week on the site that Claire wrote about um, paddock to pint or something. This mm. is somewhat, somewhat related. Um, yeah, in wine, the concept of t- t- terroir is a real thing, um, and I can't get the best Pinot Noir grapes from Burgundy, bring them to Australia and make – french style pinot noir out of those grapes and the grapes grown here can't make the exact same wine um, because of environmental conditions so terroir is a real thing in in wine
1: not so much in beer and, and in fact uh, the, the, the brewer's job is almost to strip the terroir out you know but, but we're, we're talking about to a certain level not obviously we'll, we'll come to the um you know the the, the local beers um and the The paddock to plate but you know when you're looking at some of the bigger international brands where they want to source their grain from anywhere or you know even the bigger Australian brands they source the grain from anywhere the hops from anywhere and they want and even brew in multiple breweries you you want to almost strip the terroir out to get a consistency across all of the 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 the, the production run over a year
0: you do and I think it comes down to the ingredients of beer are highly transportable um in terms of you can buy them from anywhere and shift them to anywhere but the beer itself is not highly transportable in, in that it, it doesn't travel well and it's got a short shelf life in in most types of beer
1: and and that's and that's the opposite of wine i summarize that by saying and it goes back to what you're saying about the you know pinot grapes or whatever you know wine is a postcard from where the grapes were grown you know beer is something that is best, you know, consumed locally um, and 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 enjoyed the experience as close to the brewery as you can get it. Very much so. Yep. Um,
0: look, they're, they're both fermented alcohol products, but there's not a lot of similarity in the way that their ingredients and, and their consumption in terms of where and how have in common. Mm.
1: Um, yeah, very different. Um, while we're talking hops and to save jumping around – too much. Uh, The new Australasia appointment uh, at New Zealand Hops. Glenn Rowell has been appointed Australasian Sales and Key Account Manager at New Zealand Hops. New Zealand Hops has seen some changes across its team recently with the departure of CEO Craig or in May, and the appointment of Alana Riley as shareholder director earlier this month. At the same time, Paul Dalzell resigned from the board after 14 years. Glen Rale is joining New Zealand Hops from Castle's Brewing Company, where he served as New Zealand sales manager. He has previously worked at the Best Beverage Company and Red Bull New Zealand. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything you want to pull out of that one, BV? Uh, just <laughs> send, send some more New Zealand Hops to Australia. Um, <laughs> I
0: And, and I look, at my, it may have changed in the last couple of years but certainly it was a it was a point of frustration at times that all these hops were getting shipped up to the U.S. and we were to contract and we would, you know at times we'd be asking to go oh, we don't need it this harvest what about if you just get us a few kilos in two harvest time <laughs> um, and and they weren't there but then they were popping up at all these obscure places every little brewery in the U.S. was making R- Rewalka IPA and Mochiwaka Pilsner or whatever it was so That was a sense of frustration in terms of how they chose to distribute. And Doug Doug Donald, the CEO at the time, and I had many a um, (laughs) a beer about why they chose to do it that way.
1: It's interesting. And it's something I'm trying to, to get my head around because for a long time, the conversation coming out of New Zealand was there's not enough land to produce and it's, you know, um, hops didn't command the price set for example apples and you had to grub out your apples to put in you know to to, to grow hops for example and so there was always a, a a shortfall in production but we are now seeing some new competition in the New Zealand brewing space um, with uh, you know some private equity backed um, growers who are outside of the uh, cooperative approach that has guided New Zealand, so it, it, it seems to be a really interesting time for the New Zealand industry. But your frustrations were certainly um, mirrored in, in in the US. I heard as well, where a lot of brewers were saying that they couldn't get enough of the New Zealand hops either.
0: Yeah, look, we have to recognise it's a small country with only a small small part of that small country growing um, hops, so it's a very small harvest. We have to keep that in in consideration. But you know, I. Thought proportionally to not be able to buy, you know, 50 kilos of hops from two if for two harvests in advance. Surely it might have been possible to do that. And I don't know. Um, it was a distribution thing. I I tend to think that they thought there was more. Marketing value, brand equity to had to be had for New Zealand hops by having the US craft brewers use them, then sending them to Australia, um, and I guess that's just a choice they made in their in their commercial case.
1: And there's always decisions that have to be made, but it would, it, it it's interesting. Um, just this morning, I got a a mail out from an American publication that you know was talking about bring home the tropical flavours of New Zealand with Mochueka and Nelson Sauvin, And I thought it must have been a, a an ad for New Zealand Hops because it was a big New Zealand Hops thing, but it turned out that it was an ad that had been taken out by Hopsteiner um, and Clayton Hops, who, which is a member of the New Zealand Hops Cooperative, but is separately um, distributing through uh, Hopsteiner, which is an interest. You know, again, it... it, it I. I that to me seems to be highlighting some of those pressures that we're seeing of some of the growers seem to want to broaden their wings or do some things differently.
0: Yeah, and I guess there's that as well. I mean, look, if you can't contract, there's often many other if you can't get it through your your main hop supplier, vendor, um, there are often back back roads to go and get what you need in terms of hops because there's a there's a market for people that are that have over contracted and their and their particular supplier isn't that motivated to let them out there are usually ways to get what you want if you really want it um, the best way would just be, be to have a, a good contract with your supplier and uh, a good relationship with them at the same time so if things are going
1: better or worse than expected there's some flexibility on each side to make adjustments Mm. oh we've got a new uh sales and key account manager that we can talk through some of these issues with anyway um back to awards entries have opened for the 2022 indies and indie judging applications are open uh entries are open for the 2022 independent beer awards with significant changes made to this year's format according to organizers at the iba some of the changes include implementation of a new competition tech management system mm <laughs> Um, which are probably most consumers won't be aware of but the judges certainly will Um, an integrated judges training and mentoring program which is great and probably feeds into the story we did on the uh, Sydney Beer Awards in more consumer facing news or industry facing news a revised trophy and class schedule welcoming new categories that addresses trends like juicy hazy no and low alcohol and renaming of hybrid and mixed culture to the more consumer friendly fruit and funk Um, merging of the competition's smallest categories and Amber Dark Isle with Porter Stout to create what will now be Amber Dark Beer, the creation of a new advisory committee and the adoption of new scoring methodology for determining champion size and state trophy winners. The awards will be held this year at the Mooney Valley Racecourse on Monday the 26th of September to Wednesday the 28th of September. Are you still on the judging circuit? Brendan, I know you were involved in WA. Yeah, and I and I did do
0: Melbourne this year. I just had a gap and um there are a few people that couldn't get back from World Beer Cup in time. Certainly certainly not as much as as I was in the past, but i do the occasional competition. Yeah. Did do, do you still enjoy it? I, I do. Um and certainly uh you know, often it's to catch up with friends that you don't from, from other parts of the world that you don't see all day every day um, and you speak to probably less now that you're not in that i'm not in beer all the time and yeah i do i enjoy conversations about beer and that's just one great big long conversation for
1: two three or four days straight <laughs> it's even longer than an episode of bruise Years week <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, so yes yes i do i do do you have any observations on the the new judging categories yeah there's a bit there and
0: these probably applies almost not just the indies Um, maybe just competitions in Australia generally is um, the the one I'm curious about and I'd like like to understand is that process of tracking the champion trophy um, not just on medals or things for the champion brewery trophies, what what that's going to be, coming from an understanding that we're operating with a hybrid system now in Australia which is partly score-based and then it becomes – later on in terms of trophies consensus-based, i.e. the table reaches a consensus about what a final best beer is out of a group of already good beers or gold medal beers, how that relates to champion brewery trophies. Curious to see what that methodology, methodology is, and I'm sure that they've got it in hand there at the Indies. I think the same thing applies to the AIBA, and in fact, all competitions that run that hybrid thing of your scores up to a point, and then once once you've got a gold medal, it then becomes consensus-based, how you then track back points because of what happens at the tables once you get a gold and use that as valuable data to track a score for a, across a, a brewery's performance. Um, yeah, the detail that would be great to read and, and understand. And then more broadly, I don't know about how long or why in Australia uniquely you can enter – there's draft beer and package beer categories. That's a uniquely Australian thing. Yeah. Um, and I do know why. It's because you, know, you get double the entries and double the entry fees. But for how long do does that need to occur that you enter XYZ Pilsner in package and XYZ Pilsner in draft? Why do both need to be assessed?
1: Does that feed back into the idea that, uh, you know, did the, the awards provide feedback to, to, to brewers? And if it potentially helps them identify – you know, issues with Maybe. one of their, uh, you know, packaging solutions. Potentially.
0: Yeah, there, there is that. In terms, of, if you look at it as, as a reason why people enter, one of them is is feedback. And you know, I know it's always a bugbear from every entrant. And at the time, it was myself included. Even if you do well, you're never happy with your feedback. Um, and not, <laughs> in terms of what it, not in terms of what it says. Um, you seem to always want more. It always seems to be a little less than ideal. And sometimes it's inconsistent. It's a constant bugbear and and, and competitions are always trying to improve it. I, th- I think it is getting better, um, but it is the reason why people enter. So I guess in terms of that, it's reasonable. Um, I yeah, just don't know that you need to enter a beer twice to see which one's better. People, consumers buy XYZ Pilsner. They don't necessarily, when, when it comes to buying things, Oh well that one won the draft award, so I'll buy it in draft when I'm looking at the fridge I won't I won't buy it.
1: And and, and that's where the, the, the focus of a competition really matters because consumers have a reason, you know, the, the, there is a marketing reason and a you know consumers confidence reason to have awards, but then also there is feedback to, 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 to breweries. Um and, and those two things I'd, I would imagine can happily coexist in, in the same competition.
0: I think they can and and yeah I I always When entering and in fact always when making beer, I always had a consumer hat on thinking, what's the consumer gonna think about this product? So how do we name it? How do we brand it? What does it taste like? What what is their expectation when they pick this up based on what I've said on the outside compared to what it's gonna say on the inside and their probable understanding of beer? Um, and I think some of that should go into consideration when you when you set out competitions and 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 trophies and things like that
1: we, we might move on to it, it's not news but some of the brewery pro articles that we've uh, run run this week which uh, I, i'd appreciate your thoughts on and one of the ones that claire did was the reinvention that keeps brewing industry fresh she spoke to isaac arthur from kodo designs who is an american design agency but they provide some really interesting insights into branding um and you know I, i'd imagine I, I, well i'd you tell me, um, Brennan, has branding become more important to, to beer branding and marketing and, you know, the package design than when, when you started?
0: I don't know about more important. It's always been important. Or maybe it has in a more in a more cluttered space. Mm. Is, it, is it more important to get it right? I guess it is um, because there's more choices for other, for, for people to attach to if yours isn't right. Um, and I think you could run an argument that, early very early doors here in craft beer and even in the wherever it was um you could just make very very good liquid and not worry too much about it and and in a purest sense the liquid be would sell itself um there was less competition and there's also under supply like there just wasn't for for a few years there there just wasn't enough craft beer for the market now that's flipped around um and so now those the,
1: the pure liquid play with poor branding is probably not going to get you
0: there.
1: Mm. Mm. And uh, again, and uh, looking at it, the, the, the constant reevaluation of designs and the brand architecture, and thinking much more. And one, one of the things I talk about is the uh, New Belgium. You know, new Belgium moving to Voodoo Ranger, um, you know, to to try and stay relevant and you know appeal to a different market because you can either abandon your old audience in getting a new audience, or you know, there, there's a lot of challenges in that. And I guess the reverse is how do we know that um,
0: um, Ranger wouldn't have done well as a brand under New Belgium. So New Belgium Ranger or New New Belgium Voodoo, it wasn't really tried. I mean, Ranger was a very, very big IPA from New Belgium to start with, so it came with some some impetus and some um, gravitas that it was from New Belgium to give it a launch pad. So don't, we don't know that that it wouldn't have been successful if it hadn't been pulled out um and we've seen examples of that happen here in australia say with gauge for example there's the atomic beer project or atomic mm. um which they don't put gauge on at all that i i don't know whether atomics improved or done better pre or post being cleaned, pulled out of the gauge um brand house so to speak um yeah measuring those things are difficult they're they're a they're an option. I don't, I'm probably not the guy
1: to say once and for all. <laughs> you you employ good marketing people uh, to to help you good, with these things.
0: Yeah, good marketing people will market their ideas too.
1: <laughs> ah, okay, that's That's one of the things I see about um, public relations firms. You know, a, a lot of media releases we get you know, it's a public relations firm writing for their client, which is the brewery, as opposed to writing for the audience the brewery wants to reach. Is it a little bit the same with marketing design firms? It is, can be, yes. Okay. But you know one thing, uh, Brent, so go read, if you want to learn a little bit more about insights into brand and brand architecture and uh, keeping your uh, industry, keeping your brewery industry fresh, go read that article um, from Claire Burnett. But beer can labels... You know, Brendan, do you think you could say that beer can labels are these days kind of like a mini billboard? I guess they are. Yeah, it's big real estate. You can all the way around, top to bottom, there's a lot of space. If you wanted to use some of that real estate and regard your uh, beer can label as being a mini billboard, Um, You know, it's it's the brand you hold in your hand. 20 years ago, there were only a handful of beer brands and each having a couple of different alcohol strengths and it wasn't hard to choose one or have a favourite. It was simple, similar to Ford Lovers or Holden Lovers, but not anymore. Now we have hundreds of different beer brands with a plethora of flavours and strengths which equal a great choice. Each and every one of those products speaks volumes with the label making the choice more interesting each time. But with the label providing a new voice to the designers and artists and a very uh, public canvas... Who do you get to put them on your cans? To get the specs right or to get your bottle looks at the best all time, call the guys at Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging on 1300 852 235 or email sales at au to see how they can help make your brand sing. How was that? That was seamless. That was smooth. That was <laughs>
0: smooth, Matt. Well played. Well but, done. Well done. I didn't even see it coming. Well done.
1: That was the the, the text that was only sent through this morning. They didn't even know that that was the way we we're going to segue. That's the way we run things here at Brews News. So it was uh you know, when you have good advertisers, uh, it just things just work. Mate, is there was there anything that grabbed your attention this week uh, in 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 beer industry news? I did read Claire's article on um, paddock to pint.
0: Yes, and oh, I don't want to pour water on anyone's party I don't, <laughs> I don't i don't know. i don't know that paddock paddock to points a thing except for maybe that very very rare example of say what will will we'll go to van yep. diemen yeah um outside of that i don't think it's
1: a thing is it that is the challenge and it, it, it's just one of the things that i've, that I've always grappled with as, as a beer writer because you you know part of you wants to support the industry and innovation and people coming into it but then you know, particularly some of the great um, hop growers um, who are growing, you know, uh, in, in Queensland. And, your know, Hilltop Hops, really lovely guys, doing great things. And, you know, they're making very small number of hops in Brisbane. So some of the Brisbane brewers can make a Brisbane beer. But it doesn't really scale, does it? Um, because you can't grow malt in Brisbane, for example, although you can get Darling Down. It doesn't scale on either side. So the beer side or the or the grower side.
0: And the downside of it is, is just you're not necessarily selecting for the best ingredients for your consumer. You're just selecting from the local, which are not always the best. Um and the, the combination of them may not always the best. If you're locking yourself into local malt, local hops, you've only got a small selection of things to choose from. Define local. I think I think farm. Farm breweries like Will, that's very easy and, and mm. that's a reasonable and interesting thing to, to play around with and, yeah, and obviously for Will, a good personal challenge. Um, outside of that, I don't know. look, I'll always use a local supplier if their product that I'm needing is equal to or very, very close to the best one that I want for the job. Outside of that, I'll choose the best one for the job because I want to get the best product to a consumer i don't want to give them a compromise one because i took the local product that's not as good as the best available
1: although and and, and this is one of the great challenges with brewing as a business versus brewing as a you know a, 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 as you know creating something that, that is your vision at the moment local and sustainable are terms that resonate with consumers coming up with a beer that you can market as local um even if it's you know ingredients are grown interstate is, is going to have an appeal you know as we know with some marketing you know the, the marketing concept or the consumer appeal is sometimes more important than the end result product or you know the integrity of the idea that you're trying to sell through that marketing is that you know is there a tension between those no there's not
0: i don't think um you can make a, a product for local distribution doesn't necessarily and you say it's and we did one with Feral, which sadly didn't get pursued because it was only young when we launched it. Which one was that? Uh, It was Perth Local. Okay, Um, yeah, yeah, okay. And we didn't for a minute pretend or say anywhere that there was local ingredients used in that beer. It was strictly for local distribution. It was a lager that for us was timely and expensive to produce, and so we were only going to sell that locally. We didn't want it to become a great big brand in our brewery. That was going to be problematic for us. But we wanted to make a very, very good example of of lager in our minds and, and what our team considered to be um, drinkable, balanced, um, but with some complexity, lager. And so that was just for Perth, just for our local audience that support us all day, every day. Um, and it was called Perth Local. That was a local beer. We didn't anywhere pretend that we weren't using hops from other parts of the world or even malt from other parts of the world in the case of that one is the least local beer we had we used german german pilsen malt uh, rather than local malt which we use for all of our other beers
1: yeah and, and look as you said earlier in the, the show that um ingredients for beer are eminently you know transportable um and then you construct the, the the product in the market and it's more expensive to ship water around the country than it is to ship the, the the required grain i'd imagine
0: yep and then effectively when you're shipping beer
1: you're shipping 95 water yeah that, that, that's what i was thinking so uh yeah okay so there we go there there's a counter view um too but again people do love um the the idea of the paddock to plate but it can be a little bit of a marketing term um sometimes I,
0: as I, I, broadly i think that's where it sits for me it's a marketing term that in, in the fullness of time it'll be it'll land with some and not land with others and it'll be what it's going to be. And I think that's distinct from farm gate, brewery, from farm brewery stuff. Like, mm. you know, there there are us examples of that. Davey Lockson up in the U S as well had, had, um, wasn't a hundred percent farm, but very close to malt wasn't, but everything else was so a farm type brewery up there. So that's distinct, I think, from just local ingredients from nearby. Um,
1: Yeah different
0: and, and i get the i
1: understand one i don't understand the other there you go okay so uh now Brennan, i'm going to throw this to you we have um a, another commercial obligation uh, but i shouldn't make that sound like it's a chore because it's a, our good friends at bluestone yeast they sponsor our brewery of the week each week so If any of our listeners were heading to Perth or your neck of the woods over in West Australia, where, if if you could limit your choice to one brewery, where would you send them and why?
0: Where would I send them and why? I would send them to Little Creatures in Fremantle. I think it's got a very, very important place still in Australian craft beer history. And that original site down there that they opened with, I think in two thousand is a wonderful place to visit. You get a nice range of beers and there are a heap of other breweries you could wander to within a very close distance as well if you – if you so chose
1: actually that's a, a a really good choice it's probably one i would have hesitated to because it's so old but I, i've never been to in, in all of the times that i've been to little creatures i've never been disappointed and i've admired the way that they've kept uh you know the, the the same feel and vibe to to the venue as they've grown and expanded
0: yeah they have it takes a lot of work um the little creatures team what they did there with that hospitality early doors was was you know groundbreaking for australia even at the time i think at one point it was the biggest restaurant in the um asia pacific region um and they've maintained the standard more or less and they've kept the beer culture about the place and, and still being about beer it's, it's still a great afternoon just
1: to spend down there in Fremantle, at little creatures there you go. If you're heading to Western Australia, you can't miss the iconic little creatures and that's our Brewery of the Week brought to you by Bluestone Yeast. And Bluestone Yeast can supply pitches of yeast from one litre to 100 litres at greater than 2 billion cells per milliliter. Whether you are after a one-off pitch or you're looking for weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries of yeast, Bluestone Yeast has you covered. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call Derek on 038518. 3172 and talk all things yeast. And those links are in the show notes and you'll also find Blue Bluestone Yeast on our business directory, the best directory of businesses in the brewing industry. Now, Brendan, we did get a question emailed to us that I will uh, throw to you. I don't know if you know Martin Shipton. I know a few Martins and not okay. necessarily all of them by their surname. Well, he's emailed in and I, I should say that he's going to win the Lark Wolf Release Five um, and the, the the pack, and I'll come back to that. But his question to you is: Does Brendan have any association or connection to the Baskerville Tavern? And if so, do you know if Greg the Goose is still there? So <laughs> I should have vetted this before <laughs> we, we read it out to you. Um, <laughs>
0: um, so no, and um, and I know, and I well, I do know what happened to the geese, the flock of is it a flock of geese.
1: Uh, Greg the Goose. Is, 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 I, I was assuming it was a person. I.
0: Oh, is it? Okay. I thought it was one of our geese might have been, because mm-hmm. we remember we had their flock of geese running around. Okay. Um, anyway, so they got moved onto a, a nice orchard somewhere in the
1: Perth Hills. Um, I don't know of Greg the Goose
0: as a person, so. Okay.
1: Yeah. There you go. Well, that answers you Now, Now, when you say they got moved onto a nice orchard, is that like when I told my children that their goldfish, you know, went no no they did they legitimately
0: did they'll be wandering around well yeah they they will be wandering around orchard somewhere in the perth hills um there were there were no job casualties as a result of the acquisition
1: but pff, they did move along the the um, is it flock of geese they got moved along Terrific well uh, Martin Chipton. hopefully that answers you, <laughs> your, your question satisfactorily and uh, to celebrate the Wolf of the Willows release 5 and the 50 year of the shared vision between the House of Lark and Victoria's Wolf of the Willows Brewery for the next 8 weeks the mailbag letter of the week will receive a Wolf V Boilermaker Pack including the Wolf V Single Malt Whiskey the Wolf V Johnny Smoke Porter Beer a Lark Beer Glass and a Lark Glen Cain Whiskey Glass so yeah it's not a bad way to get that
0: That's a great way. To, that's a very simple way to earn a couple, well, mate, of, couple of whiskeys and a couple of beers. I'm not
1: sure you're on the uh, podcast next week, so maybe send us a a, a letter on you. I'll drop a question in. <laughs> yeah, <it's> coming. <laughs> Look for it. <laughs> And the Wolf Release 5 will launch on the 8th of August. Make sure you join the wait list to avoid missing out on this special release. Um, And I know uh, because I don't get a bottle sent to me for testing because it's going to our listeners. But the link in the show notes, which I'll be following, is larkdistillery.com forward slash products forward slash Wolf Release V, V for five. And uh, there's a link to the show notes. So make sure you register that. And you can find out more about this partnership between beer and whiskey in a bonus chat on the Beer is a Conversation podcast. Last week, we spoke to the chief distiller at Lark. This week, we're speaking to Scotty from uh, Wolf of the Willows to learn a little bit about the Johnny Smoke Porter. So it's a little bit of a bonus chat at the end of this week's uh, Beer is a Conversation. So so listen to that. Um, BV, that's all of the topics we've got in the show notes. Is there anything that you want to... Anything else you want to add? No,
0: that's... um... Covered a lot. We've covered a lot. Um, it's been a good couple of
1: weeks. I've enjoyed enjoyed being here with you. Well, mate, we might even be able to get you back if uh, if you're in the country and uh, and and have a bit of time. Always happy to. Okay, that voice you just heard is Brendan Virus, forever the founder of Feral Brewing, and I am Matt Kirkegaard, founder and forever the founder of Brews News. <laughs> Founders, <laughs> this is the founders podcast uh, and uh, forever and uh, chained to the wheel at Bruce News so thank you uh, for listening uh, dear listener and uh, the show is produced by Vivian Topalovich and edited by Joe Helder we thank Yakima Chief Hops Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging Bluestone Yeast and Lark Whiskey for their support in making this episode possible uh, share your thoughts on the show by emailing producer at Bruce News or leaving a review on your favourite podcasting service and with that BV, we are out. Thanks, Matt. Good to be with you.